0: Welcome to the Sleep Charming Podcast. The podcast where I help you drift off for a good night's sleep or simply take a moment to relax. So sit back, take a deep breath and let me read you an old story. The year 1866 was marked by a bizarre development. An unexplained and downright inexplicable phenomenon that surely no one has forgotten, without getting into those rumours that upset civilians in their seaports and deranged the public mind even far inland. It must be said that the professional seamen were especially alarmed, traders, shipowners, captains of vessels, skippers, and master mariners from Europe and America, naval officers from every country and at their heels the various national governments on these two continents, were all extremely disturbed by the business. In essence, over a period of time several ships had encountered an enormous thing at sea. A long spindle-shaped object, sometimes giving off a fluorescent glow, infinitely bigger and faster than any whale. The relevant data on this apparition, as recorded in various logbooks, agreed pretty closely to the structure of the object or creature in question. Its unprecedented speed of movement, its startling locomotive power, and the unique vitality with which it seemed to be gifted. If it was a cetacean, it exceeded in bulk any whale previously classified by science. No Cuvier nor La Neither Professor Dumrill nor Professor Catrefage would have accepted the existence of a monster sight unseen, specifically unseen by their own scientific eyes, striking an average of observations taken at different times, rejecting those timid estimates that gave the object a length of 200 feet, and ignoring those exaggerated views that saw it as a mile wide and three long. You could still assert that this phenomenal creature greatly exceeded the dimensions of anything then known to ichthyologists, if it existed at all. Now then, it did exist. This was an undeniable fact. And since the human mind dotes on objects of wonder, you can understand the worldwide excitement caused by this unearthly apparition. As for relegating it to the realm of fiction, that charge had to be dropped. In essence, on July 20, 1866, the steamer governor, Higginson, from the Calcutta and Burnitch Steam Navigation Co., encountered this moving mass five miles off the eastern shores of Australia. Captain Baker, at first, thought that he was in the presence of an unknown reef. He was even about to fix its exact position when two water spouts shot out of this inexplicable object and sprang hissing into the air some 150 feet. So, unless this reef was subject to the intermittent eruptions of a geyser, the Governor Higginson had fair and honest dealings with some aquatic mammal, unknown till then that could spurt from its blowholes water spouts mixed with air and steam. Similar events were likewise observed in the Pacific Sea, on July 23 of the same year, by the Christopher Columbus from the West India and Pacific Steam Navigation Co., Consequently, this extraordinary cetacean could transfer itself from one locality to another with startling swiftness. Since within an interval of just three days, the Governor Higginson and the Christopher Columbus had observed it at two positions on the chart separated by a distance of more than 700 nautical leagues, 15 days later and 2,000 leagues farther. The Helvetia from the Compagnie Nationale and the Shannon from the Royal Mail Line running on opposite tracks in that part of the Atlantic lying between the United States and Europe, respectively signalled each other that the monster had been sighted in latitude 42 degrees, 15 north, and longitude 60 degrees, 35 west of the meridian of Greenwich. From their simultaneous observations, they were able to estimate the mammal's minimum length at more than 350 English feet, this was because both the Shannon and the Helvetia were of smaller dimensions, although each measured 100 metres stem to stern. Now then, the biggest whales, those raw crawl whales that frequent the waterways of the Aleutian Islands, have never exceeded a length of 56 metres, if they reach even that. One after another, reports arrived that would profoundly affect public opinion. New observations taken by the transatlantic liner Pure, the Inman's line Etna running afoul of the monster, an official report drawn up by the officers on the French frigate Normandy, dead earnest reckonings obtained by the general staff of the Commodore Fritz James aboard the Lord Clyde. In light hearted countries, people joked about this phenomenon, but such serious and practical countries as England, America, and Germany were deeply concerned. In every big city, the monster was the latest rage. They sang about it in the coffee houses, they ridiculed it in newspapers. They dramatised it in the theatres, the tabloids found it a fine opportunity for hatching all sorts of hoaxes. In those newspapers short of copy, you saw the reappearance of every gigantic imaginary creature, from Moby Dick, that dreadful white whale from the high Atlantic regions, to the stupendous kraken whose tentacles could entwine a 500-ton craft and drag it into the ocean depths. They even reprinted reports from ancient times the views of Aristotle and Pliny accepting the existence of such monsters, then the Norwegian stories of the Bishop Pontopanon, the narratives of Paul Egdy, and finally the reports of Captain Harrington, whose good faith is above suspicion, in which he claims he saw, while aboard the Castilian in 1857, one of those enormous serpents that until then had frequented only the seas of France's old extremist newspaper, the Constitutionalist, An interminable debate then broke out between the believers and the sceptics in the scholarly societies and scientific journals. The monster question inflamed all minds. During this memorable campaign, journalists making a profession of science battled with those making a profession of wit, spilling waves of ink, and some of them even two or three drops of blood, since they went from sea serpents to the most offensive personal remarks. For six months the war seesawed, with inexhaustible zest, the popular press took potshots at feature articles from the Geographic Institute of Brazil, the Royal Academy of Science in Berlin, the British Association, the Smithsonian Institution of Washington, D.C., at discussions in the Indian archipelago in Cosmos. Published by Father Moigno in Petermann's Mittalundian and at scientific chronicles in the great French and foreign newspapers, when the monster's detractors cited a saying by the botanist Linnaeus that nature doesn't make leaps. Witty writers in the popular periodicals parodied it, maintaining in essence that nature doesn't make lunatics, and ordering their contemporaries never to give the lie to nature by believing in krakens, sea serpents, Moby-Dicks and all other efforts from drunken seamen. Finally, in a much-feared satirical journal, an article by its most popular columnist finished off the monster for good, Spurning it in the style of Hippolytus, repulsing the amorous advances of his stepmother Phaedra, and giving the creature its quietus amid a universal burst of laughter, wit had defeated science. During the first months of the year 1867, the question seemed to be buried, and it didn't seem due for resurrection, when new facts were brought to the public's attention. But now it was no longer an issue of a scientific problem to be solved, but quite a real and serious danger to be avoided. The question took an entirely new turn. The monster again became an islet, rock or reef, but a runaway reef, unfixed and elusive. On March 5, 1867, the Moravian from the Montreal Ocean Co., lying during the night in latitude 27 degrees 30 and longitude 72 degrees 15, ran at starboard a quarter foul off a rock marked on no charts of these waterways. Under the combined efforts of wind and 400 horsepower steam, it was travelling at a speed of 13 knots. Without the high quality of its hull, the Moravian would surely have split open from its collision and gone down together with the 237 passengers it was bringing back from Canada. This accident happened around five o'clock in the morning, just as day was beginning to break. The officers and watch rushed to the craft stern. They examined the ocean with the most scrupulous care. They saw nothing except a strong eddy breaking three cable lengths out, as if those sheets of water had been violently churned. The site's exact bearings were taken, and the Moravian continued on course apparently undamaged. Had it run afoul off an underwater rock or the wreckage of some enormous derelict ship, they were unable to say, but when they examined its undersides in the service yard, they discovered that part of its keel had been smashed. This occurrence, extremely serious in itself, might perhaps have been forgotten like so many others, if three weeks later it hadn't been reenacted under identical conditions. Only thanks to the nationality of the ship victims by this new ramming, and thanks to the reputation of the company to which the ship belonged, the event caused an immense uproar. No one is unaware of the name of that famous English ship owner, Cunard. In 1840, this shrewd industrialist founded a postal service between Liverpool and Halifax, featuring three wooden ships with 400 horsepower paddle wheels and a burden of 1,162 metric tons. Eight years later, the company's assets were increased by four 650 horsepower ships at 1,820 metric tons and in two more years, by two other vessels of still greater power and tonnage. In 1853, the Cunard Co, whose mail-carrying charter had just been renewed, successively aided its assets to Arabia, the Persia, the China, the Scotia, the Java, and the Russia. All ships of top speed, and after the Great Eastern, the biggest ever to plough the seas. So in 1867, this company owned 12 ships eight with paddle wheels, and four with propellers. If I give these highly condensed details, it is so everyone can fully understand the importance of this maritime transportation company, known to the world over for its shrewd management. No transoceanic navigational undertaking has been conducted with more ability. No business ceilings have been crowned with greater success. In 26 years, Cunard ships have made 2,000 Atlantic crossings without so much as a voyage cancelled, a delay recorded, a man, a craft or even a letter lost. Accordingly, despite strong competition from France, passengers still choose the Cunard Line in preference to all others, as can be seen in a recent survey of official documents. Given this, no one will be astonished by the uproar provoked by this accident involving one of its finest steamers. On April thirteenth, 1867, with a smooth sea and a moderate breeze, the Scotia lay in longitude 15 degrees 12 and latitude 45 degrees 37. It was travelling at a speed of 13 knots under the thrust of its 1,000 horsepower engines. Its paddle wheels were churning the sea with perfect steadiness. It was then drawing 6.7 metres of water and displacing 6,624 cubic metres. At 4.17 in the afternoon, during a high tea for passengers gathered in the main lounge, a collision occurred, scarcely noticeable on the hull, affecting the Scotia's hull in that quarter a little astern of its port paddle wheel. The Scotia hadn't run afoul of something, it had been fouled, and by a cutting or perforating instrument rather than a blunt one. This encounter seemed so minor that nobody on board would have been disturbed by it had it not been for the shouts of crewmen in the hold, who climbed on deck yelling, we're sinking, we're sinking. At first, the passengers were quite frightened, but Captain Anderson hastened to reassure them. In fact, there could be no immediate danger. Divided into seven compartments by watertight bulkheads, the Scotia could brave any leak with imputiny. Captain Anderson immediately made his way into the hold he discovered that the fifth compartment had been invaded by the sea, and the speed of this invasion proved that the leak was considerable. Fortunately, this compartment didn't contain the boilers, because their furnaces would have been abruptly extinguished. Captain Anderson called an immediate halt, and one of his sailors dived down to assess the damage. Within moments, they had located a whole two metres in width on the steamer's underside, Such a leak could not be patched, and with its paddle wheels half-swamped, the Scotia had no choice but to continue its voyage. By then it lay 300 miles from Cape Clear, and after three days of delay that filled Liverpool with acute anxiety, it entered the company's docks. The engineers then proceeded to inspect the Scotia, which had been put to dry in dock. They couldn't believe their eyes, two and a half metres below its waterline there gaped a symmetrical gash in the shape of an isosceles triangle. This breach in the sheet iron was so perfectly formed, no punch could have done a cleaner job of it. Consequently, it must have been produced by a perforating tool of uncommon toughness. Plus, after being launched with prodigious power and then piercing four centimetres of sheet iron, this tool had needed to withdraw itself by a backward motion truly inexplicable. This was the last straw and it resulted in arousing public passions all over again. Indeed, from this moment on, any maritime casualty without an established cause was charged to the monster's account. This outrageous animal had to shoulder responsibility for all derelict vessels, whose numbers are unfortunately considerable. Since out of those 3,000 ships whose losses are recorded annually at the Maritime Insurance Bureau, the figure for steam or sailing ships supposedly lost with all hands in the absence of any news, amounts to at least two hundred. Now then, justly or unjustly, it was the monster who stood accused of their disappearance. And since, thanks to it, travel between the various continents had become more and more dangerous, the public spoke up and demanded straight out that, at all costs, the seas be purged of this fearsome cetacean.